In this episode of Full Stack Radio, I talked to Gary Bernhardt about building Execute Program as a full stack TypeScript application and the implications using TypeScript has on what you need to test. This is Full Stack Radio, episode 144. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Full Stack Radio Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Wallen, and today it's my pleasure to welcome to the show uh, Gary Bernhardt, who I've been a massive fan of since I basically first became a professional programmer way back in like 2012. So it's super awesome to have you on the show, Gary. How's it going, man? Uh, it's going well, and thank you for having me. And I, you had never told me that, so I'm very flattered. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was like a huge like Destroy All Software fan from like back in the, you know, in my early days of learning um to program and i think still to this day like i haven't seen like an educational resource that really like resonated with what the stuff that i wanted to learn as as much as destroy all software did so um i actually remember seeing you speak at code mash and um i was like too nervous to even like introduce myself because i was like such a fanboy at the time in my, my early junior days of programming so um yeah it's awesome to have a chance to chat with you here yeah well, yeah, I appreciate it. Um, so where do you want to start? Yeah, so I think what I want to talk about today is, I mean, what originally got me excited to talk to you in terms of topics is you recently, I don't know if recently is really the right word anymore, but something that you're currently kind of, your active project is Execute Program, which is like an online um, tool to help people like learn different programming topics with all this like crazy innovative like interactive learning tech that you've sort of like built to make this experience sort of really unique and and work better than a lot of the ways that people have historically tried to learn these sorts of topics and while you've been doing that um, occasionally you'll tweet out like pretty interesting little tidbits around how you've been like sort of putting it together and the thing that sort of got it on my radar originally was just realizing that you were building this whole thing as like a full stack javascript application or typescript application i think TypeScript, right yeah. yeah and uh until then i knew you as like the ruby and python guy you know what i mean and <laughs> bash and all and vim and you know all this other stuff but definitely not yeah. known for like um in the in the sort of javascript world so I, it got me kind of interested because i was thinking well okay well why is gary like going full uh, JavaScript. He's like building stuff with Node and whatever. Super. So um, I thought it'd be really interesting to just sort of like almost start the conversation around that whole story. And there's a lot of interesting things I'd like to get into from there. But maybe even an earlier um, would be just starting with like what Execute Program sort of is, I guess, maybe where you got the idea from when you started working on it. Sure. Um, so I'll try to give the very short summary because I don't want to, you know, spend the whole podcast describing a, a, a product. But um, the basic idea is that when you're learning programming tools, often you there are basically two paths that people tend to fall into. Um, either you're going to r- consume some kind of static content, whether it's docs, books, video, whatever, or you take the path that is more familiar to me, which is you just start trying to build stuff and like and like constantly trip over things and then try to figure out what you tripped over. Right. So like the sort of interactive path or the or the passive content path. Mm-hmm. My goal, and both have strengths, and so what I wanted to do was integrate them, um, and not just in a way where like, oh, you read a chapter of text and there's a problem at the end or whatever, but uh, we integrate them at the like second to second level. So Execute Program currently, as we record this, contains about 2,000 interactive code examples that run in the browser, and about 2,000 
little paragraphs of text. So it's like almost exactly one-to-one and they're just interleaved with each other. So you never go more than about 30 seconds without either doing some kind of interactive example where you have to actually solve some small problem or uh, or so reading some kind of um, static explanation. So, and there's like a million other things about the app than that, but that's like the core sort of motivation was to uh, integrate those. And then, you know, it's a spaced repetition system and there's all this secondary stuff. Um, so that's the app. And it was originally written in, uh, it was originally a Python backend and a Preact, that's React with a P in front, so it's a yeah. very small re-implementation of React, uh, a Preact front end in just regular old JavaScript. And the path from uh, Ruby backend and JavaScript front end to being a full end-to-end node and TypeScript app uh, wasn't about Node or NPM or JavaScript. It was really just that after 15 years of primarily programming in dynamic languages, meaning mostly Python and Ruby, um, I was just really tired of, of struggling with the same silly mistakes and writing uh, tests that I knew were were doing things that a static type system could do. And so uh, I ported the front end from JavaScript to TypeScript for the purpose of easing refactorings of React components. So, you know, you split a component into four different ones, but then you forget some edge case and pass the wrong props in some condition or whatever. That problem just disappeared. And then... Um, something like four months later or six months later, I don't remember, some number of months later, uh, I was having, I was frustrated by the same thing except on the API side. So you make an API request, you pass in the wrong data or you try to read out the wrong data or whatever. And it's like the most statically typable problem imaginable. It's just completely solvable with static types. And so I decided to port the entire backend from Ruby to TypeScript, um, which, you know, Node had to come along with that for the ride. But it was really about TypeScript, which I think is TypeScript, given its constraints, is so well designed, I never would have guessed it was even possible until I actually learned it. It's it's mind-blowingly good, considering the just horrible constraints it had to be designed under. Um, so that's basically how I ended up at TypeScript is, you know, really sort of just day-to-day boring kinds of problems that I was tired of fighting with. Um, that's so a, that might've been, I don't know if that was more than you were asking for. No, but. that's, that's <laughs> perfect. So, okay. So there's a lot of stuff that I want to talk about here because like, I think a, an argument that I've had with people in the past that I'm really interested to like learn more about from your perspective is a lot of people like will make the argument that like, well, if you have, um, you know, type safety, you don't need to write as many tests. And I, I think you would argue the same thing. However, most of the time, the people that I've had that conversation with, their arguments feel like very weak to me. Like usually they're like, well, now I don't have to write a test that says, what if I pass a string instead of a number? And I'm like, what? <laughs> no one should write that test. You know what yeah, I mean? You like, never write <laughs> so I've always like believed that there was basically any type error should be caught by a test, but not because you were explicitly testing for the types because like if the type error results in an incorrect behavior in the system that your test should fail because there's like some incorrect uh, behavior in the system so i'd be really curious to hear what your arguments for it are i think because i fully trust that they're like incredibly well reasoned compared to the ones that i normally hear (laughs) (laughs) well i hope i can live up to that um so 
Uh, it's funny that before we actually get to the meat of that, it's funny that you your sort of starting point was people saying that uh, the the thing about testing or using a type system to prevent you from passing a number to a function that expects a string. Because when we we had talked in advance or briefly about what we were going to talk about today, and that is exactly one of the straw men that I wrote down as like you know oh. <laughs> not a good argument for um, <laughs> for why dynamic why static typing is useful. Uh, so <clears throat> the thing that you said about the, the test suite verifying the behavior of the system is totally true if you, number one, have, well, if you have perfect coverage of the system. And that doesn't mean just line-wise coverage because executing at every line isn't sufficient. And it doesn't mean even path coverage. Path coverage means like, let's say you have a function with two with a conditional with two sides and if and an else and then after that unrelated is a second conditional with two sides you have uh, four paths to that function because you could take either side of the first conditional and either side of the second so even covering all the paths isn't sufficient because the data might vary in weird ways that cause you know you might for example uh, you never thought to test for when some array is empty and you're indexing it and so you're getting an undefined out but your, yeah. your test never tested that um, so the thing about, uh, let's throw away the integer versus string thing and just think about like you have a function that takes uh, a not, supposedly takes a string and you didn't think about what happens if it's undefined. Well, maybe you never pass undefined to that function, but maybe you pass something that was indexed out of an array to it. And if that array was empty or didn't contain that index, you're going to get an undefined. And this is like, at least in dynamic languages, this is one of the most common and annoying sources of bugs is whatever kind of nulls your language yeah. has and they it's show like up unexpected null yeah yeah exactly uh, and these languages tend to have very lax with a, with a somewhat for an exception of python uh, they have very lax handling of nulls so like indexing an array with an unexpected index gives you a null an undefined or a nil or whatever it's called same thing with uh, hashes or objects so uh, one of the big benefits of a static type system is you can say this function takes a string and under no conditions will allow you to pass an undefined into there, except, so I mentioned the TypeScript was designed under severe constraints. Actually, TypeScript does have this problem because it, the type of indexing an array is the type of the array. It does not union it with undefined. Uh, so this is not the greatest example, but there are lots of sort of other situations like this. Objects are a better example because TypeScript will prevent you from uh, accessing a, a property that doesn't exist on an object and getting an unexpected undefined and then passing that down into a function that never expected the undefined. Like all of that kind of weird uh, stuff, those kind of weird bugs that can only occur due to runtime uh, data, a lot of them go away, not all of them. And, you know, the language you use determines how many. If you're programming in Idris, like really you get pretty close to all of them going away. If you're programming in TypeScript, like, it probably gets you 80% of the way towards preventing those kinds of things, you know? Mm. Um, but, you know, this stuff comes up constantly with, uh, so that was all, that's, all of that was supposing perfect test coverage. You still have these problems that are, that are based on runtime data. They're not based on the structure of the code you wrote. Would that mean that you don't actually have perfect test coverage though? Like that is the implication. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I don't want to write, I don't want to achieve 100% path coverage. I don't even, even want to achieve 100% line coverage. Uh, so in execute programs code base, 
the ratio of test code to, I should have written the actual number down, but it's something like um, maybe four to one production code to test code. Interesting. So, that, that feels like the, that feels like a lot more production code to test code than like what I remember seeing in like the destroyal software screencasts and stuff. Exactly, and everything was like Ruby and Rails stuff. Yeah, and it's a it's a lot it's a lot more production to test than in the destroyal software code base as well because in that's Ruby and like I have to constantly protect myself from from uh, mistakes, and with TypeScript in play, I can strategically test things at just the right place. So like Execute Program has this core bit of code in it that handles your kind of progression through a course and the lessons and so on. Like that's really critical and quite complex code. All of that is like just paranoid testing around it because if any of that ever goes wrong, it's gonna get baked into the database and it's, you know, it's gonna be sure. there forever. Um, but, but for example, our React components, Strictly speaking, we have zero tests around the entire React front end. Now, that's there are a few points that are actually tested, but they're kind of factored out, like um, reducer kind of stuff, like the actual sure. reducer. Not like direct tested. component testing, but just like there's some right. hairy piece of logic that I extracted and wrote a test for because it was easier to write the code if I had tests while I was writing it, sort of thing. Yep, exactly. Um, and that's not to say that the front end is never tested because we have some Cypress tests that drive a browser. So. Uh, our tests actually step through every single lesson in the system just to make sure that like nothing blows up, but that's more of a just a giant smoke test. Mm-hmm. So, and and it requires no incremental work when I write new content or new components. It just kind of works for free. So, by having TypeScript in place and not having to worry about all the wiring up of components, I can focus on very complex type uh, fine grained tests for the core logic of the system. And uh, I can have this nice high-level test that runs through and makes sure nothing is totally broken. But I don't have to write a whole lot of just really boring, like, this component, when it gets this prop, it renders, you know, with this class or whatever. I don't do any of that stuff. And uh, I think it's worked really well. Like, I, I have no regrets about, about switching to TypeScript for that purpose because the type overhead is quite small when programming, but the test overhead that is saved is massive. I mean, we're talking about... I wrote a blog post with numbers in it, but I think it was something like the system would be 2.5 times as many lines of code if I had done a standard, what was it, two to one test to code ratio. Can you think of an ex- like a concrete example of something that like you would have written a test for if you weren't using TypeScript that you didn't write a test for now and is also ne- never or guaranteed to never break? Yeah, so... Um... I mean, the API is a great example. So we have this, it's a, it's a single page app. So the, the, we don't even do SSR. So the front end is always making API requests to the back end on every page load uh, and every page transition. And um, most of that API code is actually untested. So we have tons of back end handlers for the API endpoints. And what they usually look like is a request is coming in, it's statically typed, the type is known. We use a, a library called IOTS to dynamically make sure that the payload actually matches the expected type so you can't like pass in you know weird unexpected stuff and confuse our backend and then that uh, backend API handler is going to take that request apart so let's say I don't know um, let's say it's just the user registering right so there's like an email field and uh, well we don't have passwords but there's an email field sure. <laughs> um, 
So we're going to pull that out of the payload and then pass it on to a database model that's going to create the actual record. But the code that that takes the incoming API request apart and passes it along to the deeper parts is just completely untested. There's There are no tests around it. And the reason is that there is almost never a conditional in there. So as long as the structure of the data coming in is correct, which we know through a combination of static types and IOTS dynamic validation, then uh, there's... I mean, I'm sure something could go wrong, but there's almost nothing that could go wrong. And I believe it is true that we have never had a runtime failure due to that code. It's untested. And but could that never just be failed. because it was written by Gary Bernhardt? Instead, uh, we have had runtime <laughs> run failures in other code. <laughs> uh, question, quick question about <laughs> like the I, IOTS thing. Um, yeah, is that basically just like a way to do TypeScript's normal sort of like development um, level? type checking but at runtime because as far as i understand it correct me if i'm wrong but like typescript doesn't actually do any type checking in like your production builds right like all that stuff right. is stripped out it's just like during development that you kind of catch all that stuff and like at compile time obviously yep yep that's right um so typescript is a, an erasing compiler which means that it does not the compiled outputted code contains no uh, the compiled outputted code contains no type information or anything. It's all just deleted. Uh, so it is not checking types at runtime. And even if you wanted to, you wouldn't be able to, which is actually uh, a major downside of TypeScript. And they did it for reasons, but it is it makes it difficult to do this kind of runtime validation because the type information isn't present. So IOTS is an extremely clever solution to this problem where instead of defining the types as using TypeScript's built-in type syntax. You define them using this little DSL, basically, that is like its own thing. And then you can extract the, the, the static TypeScript type from that. So you can write the definition once, and it gives you a runtime validation for the data. And it also allows you to extract the static TypeScript type. Um, so then you can, you can validate incoming API requests at runtime. So if an attacker is trying to you know, post something invalid, you can catch that. Yep. But then as soon as IOTS says, yes, this matches the schema, then you can trust the static types. So it lets you bring uh, untrusted or, or unknown outside data into the world of trusted static types where you no longer need to do any kind of validation once it's inside of your system. Um, does that answer Yeah, that yeah. Question? Is it okay. like a Microsoft project or is it just like a community project? Uh, no, it was, it was written by, I believe, one person who still maintains it. Um, whose name I've forgotten, but uh, yeah, it's not a Microsoft thing cool. at all. Microsoft uh, and the TypeScript team, their position is we don't, we don't emit type data in the compiled output and we never will, which is one of the few things I think they have made a mistake on in the design of the language because mm. it has forced the community to come up with these solutions that work, but like IOTS is not, it's, it's so clever and it's it's very well implemented, but it is not as clean as it could be. You know, it imposes sure. non-trivial overhead, yeah. and yeah. so I, you know, but but it gets the job done, and it's it's one of the few things that's a, a major annoyance, I would say. But you know, is it a really popular project? Like, is it something that a lot of TypeScript application developers rely on? Uh, it's hard for me to say in sort of absolute terms. Um, it certainly is like widely known among TypeScript developers. Um, I don't know. I think that a lot of times TypeScript is used in apps that either predated TypeScript or kind of are a mix of it. And so they might be using some other, you know, uh, 
like Swagger or some other kind of, I've never used any of those JavaScript, you know, uh, runtime validation things, but sure. they're using some kind of API validation thing already. And so they kind of like bolt TypeScript on top. And, and then you have to, the whole problem that the IOTS is solving is if you do that, if you bolt TypeScript into a project that's using other runtime validation, then you have to manually keep the two in sync. And if you make a mistake where the types don't match the runtime validations, then you could end up with either failures or even security defects, sure. right? security yeah, holes. Yeah, yeah. So it's nice that it marries those together. Um, but yeah, I don't have a good sense. It certainly is widely known. I don't know if it's like, yeah, it's not universal about. by any means. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's not like some obscure sort of um, thing that not lots of people are using. No, no, it's not. It's, it's kind of like RSpec. Gotcha. Like everybody knows RSpec. There are camps that use it and don't. <laughs> sure, yeah. So, okay, a question I have about this specific example we're talking about still, about like the user registration and how this doesn't really need tests, in your opinion. Mm-hmm. And this could kind of like take us into probably like just some understanding TypeScript stuff too. Um, say someone tries to register with like something that isn't an email address. And I know like email is like historically one of those things where people say it's actually unvalidatable. And yeah. as long as it contains an at symbol, then you have to act as if it's a email and you don't know that it's not an email until it's not delivered or whatever. Right. But right. <laughs> let's like assume for this purpose of this conversation, because we could come up with another example. I'm sure that was similar. Otherwise that like an email does have like a known structure and that yeah. it would be possible for someone to submit an email that like wasn't an email. Is that um, like typable in TypeScript or no? Okay, so you would no, have to. So how how do you not need a test if the, you do have to make sure that the email is shaped like an email? Right. So all of the database models are tested. So the ultimately that validation is going to be done by the user class, and um, the user class is tested. So that so I do ensure that that validation is in place. Uh, and if I were testing that at the controller layer, effectively what I would be doing is retesting the the database layer, right? The, the model layer, because I would be yeah. looking for this for a failure that ultimately was not triggered by the module that I'm directly testing. So it would be duplicated. But you kind of have to do that in a dynamic language or at least write some kind of test just to make sure that like you're even calling a function that exists, you know, even something as basic as that in that controller code or uh, API endpoint code. So, uh, and, and the critical distinction is so you want to test that, that validation, right? But And you've got to do it somewhere. So let's assume you're only going to write one test. You're going to either test it at the controller layer or the database layer. Well, would you rather write a test where you have to set up a database, create something, and assert against it? Or would you rather write a test where you have to do all of that and you have to make a request against an API endpoint that's expecting an HTTP request? So you have to like have some kind of infrastructure to like build up a fake one and then tear apart the response that comes back. And mm-hmm. it's more difficult to see what's happening because if it throws an exception, you're not going to see the exception depending on what, how you've implemented sure. your test harness. You're going to yeah, see yeah. A 500 or whatever, or maybe a 400. Um, so it's basically a question of just what's where is it easiest to test that thing? Uh, and how can you scope that test down? Yeah. And do you think like TypeScript makes it easier for you to make, for you to kind of decide in that direction? Because I would say like in like a Rails world, I would be more inclined to just test it at like the request level because I have to test the request level anyways. So rather than it just being like, well, now I, instead of having the choice between testing the database model or testing everything together, it's more like um, testing everything together or testing both separately. You know what I mean? So it's not like less work 
in like that environment, but it sounds like in a TypeScript-based system, maybe it actually is less work because you can trust that the API level is going to work without having to test both, you know? Yeah, I think, no, I think that's exactly right. And this is one of the reasons that it's it's difficult for for people who've, who've worked only in dynamic languages, when they try to imagine the benefits static languages will give them, they start imagining things like this, like, oh, now I have to write, or uh, it doesn't actually reduce the number of tests I need to write because they're imagining the way they're testing now. But the way they could be testing by like pushing logical uh, uh, database logic tests actually down to the database layer, for example, would be much more efficient. Um, so you're absolutely right that it's a, when you stop thinking in terms of, I have to write a test against every single line of code and start thinking in terms of what are the actual runtime problems that can exist, right? What, what, what throws an exception, for example, and you, uh, then you can start to tighten those tests down. And, you know, like the example I just gave about writing the, the validation test at the model layer instead of the, uh, mm-hmm. endpoint layer. And, you know, it's not just about databases either. This happens everywhere, anywhere where you have layers. If you can push the testing down into the deeper layers, it just gets easier and easier, like 99% of the time. Yeah, it's interesting to think about it that way. Like, basically, you are, am I right in thinking that, like, you're deliberately trying to, like, avoid conditional logic at sort of, like, the edges of the system so that you can focus all the testing on the stuff that's deeper Totally, yeah. Um, and that's something I've been doing for a very long time, you know, long before TypeScript, because for exactly the same reason, if you can, the deeper you can push the conditionals, the easier they are to test. You know, like, uh, if you if you can test the database stuff without having to do an API request, a fake API request, that's going to make it easier. But even more than that, if you can test the logic that the database layer is using without actually making a database object, that's going to be even easier because then you don't have to worry about inserting it and pulling it back out and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, not to mention faster. You know, every one of these steps is at least an order of magnitude of performance for the test suite yeah. as well, which adds up in the long term. Um, so, uh, yeah, and it, so it's not just about any particular um, problem domain it's a totally general principle the more you can push conditionals down the easier they're going to be to test and there's there's very rarely an exception to that i find in your specific application like with the testing of the model layer are you doing that without spinning up like a test database um we do so (laughs) the way that the database tests work is there's a test database that just exists on everyone's dev machine who's working on the project and uh it never we never delete them or anything and every single test runs in its own isolated transaction so uh, a serializable postgres transaction which means that so basically what happens is the test starts it does whatever it's going to do like the table's already there uh, so it's going to make records and pull them out and whatever. And at the end of the test, we just roll the transaction back. Yeah. Uh, which is something that in Rails, for example, I know that people have done that at various times, but it's always been fraught because the system wasn't really designed for that. And the reason that I can do it is because I wrote the database library. Sure. So, <laughs> and the test runner for that matter. And, you know, those two together are under a thousand lines of code, but it, it gives me the flexibility to... You know, I can just declare that the system will work in such a way that database transactions around tests work. And if they ever don't work, then we have to fix something. You know, it's not allowed to not work. Um, and so uh, I think that, I mean, it's a wonderful way to write tests because you don't have to worry about cleaning anything up after yourself. Um, 
So yeah, I think I started to ramble there. Yeah, bit. no, that's um, good. Is there any other examples you can think of, like of um, anything that would be interesting to people who are curious still about this? Like, what do I not have to test now because like I'm using TypeScript? Which is again, I, I think like we probably haven't said this explicitly, but it, you're not guaranteed to not have to test everything. It's kind of dependent on also like authoring your code with the mindset that you're kind of talking about where it's like, how can I write code that doesn't need to be tested? It's not so much that like, like if you wrote it the exact same way you write like a, a Rails app, you'd probably still need to write all the same tests that you would write. Is that fair? Yeah, it's it's not magic. Um, yeah. It's you and there's not it's so it's not going to magically just make you not have to write tests. It's certainly not going to magically make you know when you don't have to write tests. You You have to have gone through you know you have to have tripped over all those rocks so you know where they are sure <laughs> yeah yeah and uh so you know there's obviously a, a, an amount of sort of experience that you need to do that um which is why having a background in dynamic languages and writing lots of tests is going to help you a lot in this case because um that's going to sh- start to show you what are the really dangerous parts um I forgot the other half of that question. I'm sorry. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm just curious about like, are there any other interesting like design decisions that you made other than this sort of API example we've talked about that lead to um, having to write less tests? Or is it really all about this same general principle of just like writing as un- as much unconditional code as possible? Or is there any other ideas there? Uh, it is. I mean, that's, that's certainly, uh, that's probably the single largest place where the benefits exist or where the low-hanging fruit is for for avoiding writing tests is just get the conditionals out of there because if there's no conditionals there's only one path so as long as something is executing that path you know that at least like it's it's sort of right Mm -hmm. that doesn't mean it's correct right but um i mean the you know if you think about the fact that our entire front end has zero tests on all the react components we we do have cypress tests that drive the whole thing but that's maybe a few hundred lines of test code. It's not that yeah. much compared to just thousands and thousands of lines of React, something like 10,000 lines maybe. Uh, so, you know, saving somewhere between 20 and 40,000 lines of test code on the front end, if we had theoretically fully covered it, like that is a that is a massive win. And we've seen, there's been no penalty for doing that in terms of defect rate. You know, there's, it's not like we're, like Bugsnag is just screaming at us every day. Yeah. I mean, most days Bugsnag says nothing. Uh, it's, you know, it's actually very stable. So, uh, and, you know, we could get into specific um, instances of that, but it's always, at least in a React front end, it's usually going to be some special case of, did you pass the right props down? Because most of React components is just, you know, uh, uh, aggregating together smaller components that ultimately aggregate together tags and the the types, the static types for the React project uh, cover all of that. So like it won't let you put a property on a div that isn't supposed to be there, for example. And if you use the style property, it won't let you put a key in the style property that isn't supposed to be there. Yeah. So if you, you know, if you typo padding left or uh, yeah, padding left or whatever, it's going to tell you. Uh, it's all just really pedestrian stuff like that. It's just normal day-to-day stuff where the stakes are high in the sense that you don't want the system to break, but there's so much labor in writing all those tests for those silly little things. It's, you know, just if you have a, a tool that can check that for you, it's a massive win. Do you, th- do you think like this is really like... um? 
like a very pragmatic decision at the end of the day. Like, like the, the thing I'm still like wrestling with in my head is like, aren't tests still like the more correct way of like verifying that the things are actually working. But it turns out that like 90% of the reasons that your tests are going to fail are also re- reasons that would trigger the compiler to fail. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't quite go that far. It's more that they, they, they test different kinds or they're, <laughs> I shouldn't use the word test types and tests are checking different kinds of things. And sometimes they can let you sort of approximate the same guarantees, but the, the, the sort of the deepest way to, th- to think about it or, or the sort of deepest principle that should guide you in distinguishing the two is a test is an assertion that something happens, right? Like something, when I do this, this thing happens. That's all it's asserting. And a type, a static type is saying nothing except this can happen. So, uh, the sort of straw man that you mentioned at the beginning, not that you made, but you were sort of repeating a, a commonly repeated straw man about writing tests to make sure you don't pass a string to a function that expects a number. And if someone makes that argument against testing, what they're imagining is like, okay, you write a test that says no strings allowed, and then you write a test that says no null allowed, and then you write yeah, a test like that says no, no clowns allowed. allowed, like no pizzas allowed, and <laughs> like right. it just goes forever. And, <laughs> there, there's actually, even though it's a, a, it's a, it's not a reasonable argument against dynamic languages, there is something very important to see there, which is it's showing you the mindset that that static language programmer is in, which is a, a, a perfectly valid mindset, and that mindset is. How do I make sure that things that never should happen don't happen? And a dynamic language, with a regardless of how good the test suite, it has no answer for that question because you're not going to write all those tests. You're not going to write tests that loop over every possible data type and assert that the function doesn't take it. And 99.9% of the time, you don't need that test anyway because it's not going to happen. But 0.1% of the time, there is going to be a string there, sure. you know, because whatever, you made some mistake somewhere else. Or more often, there's going to be a null there or nil or undefined or whatever your language has. And that kind of stuff is where a test suite cannot help you. Because if you try to use tests to solve that problem, you're going to fail and you're going to have a lot of useless tests. But a static type system, it's like, that's like the base case of a static type system. That's what you get without doing any work whatsoever is that you're never going to get an unexpected thing uh, passed in. But isn't, isn't the code that you write at the end of the day in the typed language that guarantees that like the wrong types aren't being passed around everywhere, like the code that causes the compiler to successfully compile, like the same code that you would have written in like the dynamic language. You know, like correct code is like correct regardless of whether it's in TypeScript or in or in JavaScript, and like that's almost like proven by the fact that TypeScript doesn't know runtime type checking. Right, right. You know, yeah, ty- TypeScript even um, when you compile your TypeScript, it basically just strips the types away and just dumps out everything without the type. I mean, that's not strictly true, but it's like yeah, mostly it, true. It's like taking like the tape off your painting or something. You know what I mean? Like it, yeah, it's yeah. like <laughs> <laughs> it's an interesting metaphor. Yeah. I, mean, I never encountered that. Um, it lets you be like kind of sloppier, and it like makes sure that. Yeah. When it's done. I don't know. Um, well, it doesn't, no, it doesn't let you be sloppier. That's, I wouldn't go that far, but it, yeah, yeah. It, like it's, it's, it's not going like, to let like, you write less correct code, but it's going right. to just like, it's just going to like beep, beep, like every, it's like playing operation or something. You I know was what just I mean? going like, to say that. <laughs> maybe that's like the right analogy. Cause like a perfect operation run, like no beeping happens, 
You know what I mean? Right, so like right. you could have a version of operation that doesn't beep and a version that does beep and the best operation player, it's it's not going to beep in either version. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. If you assume a spherical programmer, then you don't need uh, <laughs> any tests or types. Uh, and I mean, you know, I say that as a joke, of course, but like it sort of is the answer to the question, which is, you know, if you assume that you will never make a mistake, or at least I guess there are multiple levels here. So level one is the sort of uh, the the kind of programmer who says, I don't need a type system and I don't need tests. I just write the right thing the first time. Sure. Right? And so like we can probably we probably don't need to talk a lot about that. Um, and then you have level two, which is, well, I'll write tests and they'll make sure that the code is right. But then my question to that person is, what about when you write a bug and you don't realize you're writing a bug and you don't think to write the test? And, you know, that's when you go to your banking website and it says you have NAND sure. dollars in your account or whatever. Like, But it, now it there's, there's no guarantee that like a type system is going to catch that. There's You're just you're betting mm. on that there's a correlation between typing errors and um, behavioral right. well, errors. Let's let's actually dig into that because it is like literally just a super common yeah. problem in JavaScript. So normally when you see a NAN, it means that a mathematical operator has been used on a non-number, right? So mm-hmm. one divided by the string A or whatever. Um, probably that's not the exact case that's going to come up, but it's going to be something like that or one divided by undefined or whatever mathematical sure. operator. Uh, TypeScript cannot prevent all of those for reasons around the fact that it has to be backwards compatible. Uh, A language like Haskell would just make all that stuff impossible. TypeScript makes most of it impossible. And the way that it does that is when you have a function that does, you know, A divided by B, and it says it takes numbers, TypeScript is going to statically verify that they're actually numbers. And one of them is not, the string case is probably less likely, but neither of them is going to be an undefined, for example, or an null or whatever. And so it very tangibly solves that problem, you know, through this very direct mechanism. And we don't have to talk about fancy stuff like generic types or, you know, whatever conditional types or weird features that TypeScript has. It's it's just the most basic thing of like saying, when I'm dividing two things, they are actually going to be numbers at runtime. That gets you a huge amount of benefit and prevents tons of real world defects. And they're the kinds of defects that a test suite isn't going to catch because you're not going to think about those weird cases of, oh, I indexed an array with a key that didn't exist, so I got an undefined, and then I passed it to this function that did a division, and then I got a nan out. Like, that's the kind of sequence of mistakes that you want to prevent. Um, I should repeat my earlier comment that actually TypeScript does not protect you from array indexing. I I think it was a mistake. So I guess I think there are two major mistakes in TypeScript. <laughs> but, uh, you know, in general, it will prevent you from these, uh, protect you from these kinds of things. Objects are a better example because it will prevent you from uh, pulling something out of an object if the key does not actually exist. It so will statically uh, prevent that. At the end of the day, though, all it can do is like prevent, it, it can like warn you about your mistakes in ways that like you would have to rely on yourself to catch your mistakes with tests otherwise. Right. But there's, you're still betting on like that there's a correlation and because it's not necessarily like if you forget to test that you did a minus B instead of a plus B, well, like the integers went in integer comes out. Um, no type safety is going to catch that. You know what I mean? So if you forget to test that, Sure, <laughs> there sure. are there are languages that can do that, but we're not we're not talking about those, and no one's building you know no one's building a React app in, in Idris. Um, but yeah, you know you're totally right. Because I mean, 
you certainly don't want to view a static type system as some kind of magical thing that's just going to make your bugs go away. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's going to be able to catch certain classes of mistakes. And part of it, what you don't want to do is say, well, I'm going to switch to TypeScript because I keep having all these bugs and TypeScript's going to make the bugs go away because that's not going to work. What you have to do is learn the language, learn the type system, understand its limits, which will happen naturally as you use it. And then as you start to understand its limits and what it can give you and what it can't, then you're going to tailor the way you write code to those limits. And you're going to recognize when you're when you're in a danger zone where it can't help you, and then you're going to write a test or you're going to manually verify it or whatever. And none of that is unique to TypeScript or type systems because the same thing is true of testing. If you naively assume like, oh, I covered 100% of lines, therefore I have no bugs. Yeah, yeah. Well, what happens with a thing where you index an array, you get an undefined, you divide it, and then yeah. you get an an, you know? Like, mm -hmm. you have to understand what safety you're actually getting from the tools. Um, and uh, I had another example that came to mind a few minutes ago, but now it's slipped my mind. If you had to, like, try and summarize, like, the, the benefit, I guess, in, like, the most practical way, is it basically that... Um, I, I keep wanting to think of it as like an extra layer of protection, right? That just helps you catch things that you might not notice. But the fact that it is going to let you write less tests doesn't feel that calling it an extra layer is like correct anymore because an extra layer makes it sound like, okay, well maybe it like I've, I, I almost think of it as like, okay, well if like the compiler fails to compile, is that like, telling me that i i'm missing a test because my test suite passed but the mm. compiler failed like that's always the way that i've sort of thought about it and i don't think like you think about it that way no, so i'm curious no. if you have like any sort of like direct kind of response to that line of thinking you know yeah well i think that what you're highlighting there is um a very important so so far we've spent what uh like 40 minutes <laughs> talking about <laughs> um TypeScript and static type systems as preventing bugs, right? Preventing defects. Mm -hmm. And really, while that is a benefit that they provide, it's not quite the right way to frame it. And I'll, I'll, I'll sort of give you a, a larger scale example from Execute Program itself that kind of highlights this. So Execute Program, uh, we have static types for our database itself. So it's a Postgres database, which means the columns have types we use a very small tool to generate TypeScript types definitions from those. So if the schema has a number in a column, then we're gonna have a TypeScript type that says those database objects have numbers there and those are guaranteed to match. Then those database objects get returned by our API. Well, the API is statically typed on both sides. So we know that the server is returning the types, the data types that it claims to, and we know that the client also knows those data types, and then they get passed down into the React components. So let's say that we have a database column that is currently, uh, just to make it really simple, it's an integer column, and we're gonna change it to be a number. I mean, sorry, uh, a string. We're gonna change it from an integer to a string. So currently all the types are passing, right? And we make that database schema change with a migration. That's gonna cause, that migration process is going to auto-regenerate the TypeScript type definitions, which yep. means that our database layer now fails to type check because the database layer is passing numbers in there, but now it wants a string. So we change the database layer uh, to, to pass the, the type checker. Now our API backend code that we were talking about earlier, the sort of handler for that API request, now that's failing to type check because it is trying to pass a number down 
into the database layer, but the database layer now wants a string. Yeah. So we fix that. Well, now, uh, as part of fixing that, we have to actually change the API types that are shared between client and server because that's what the backend API handler returns. Yeah. So now the client side code that does the API request is failing to type check because it is trying to, uh, let me make sure I get this right, it's trying to send in a number when it wants a string. So now we have to update that. But then the React props are gonna fail because the props themselves also had that number in them and it was passed down, but now that's not right. It needs to be a string. So the React components themselves have to be fixed. So none of that is like, the way to think about that chain of the type system forcing you to make the update in the correct order at every single layer, the way to think about that is not that it was catching defects, but the type system on a second by second basis is just showing you the next change you need to make in order to complete the larger change. Like it's guiding you through the system. And depending on you know what editor you use or whatever, it can do that totally automatically. Like it can jump you to the next place you need to be. And that is a much better illustration of the high level benefits of a static type system. It's like you're offloading the parts of your thinking about code that are actually automatable, as opposed to thinking about it as like, it's just a bunch of checks that are going to run, which you know at the end of the day it is, but the way that you interact with it is much more like if you could pair with someone who could never give you any any subjective input on design, but could always point out certain types of mistakes that you make all the time. Like that would yeah. be awesome. That would be an awesome pairing partner. <laughs> and that's basically what the type checker is. I feel like I get that feeling from TDD a lot too, though, of like being able to like fix this thing. And then it's like, okay, well now like the next stack trace thing that's causing the test to fail is a little bit deeper then a little bit deeper then a little bit deeper until it's passing you you totally do um the only i mean there are ba- so you know i'm certainly not anti-testing like uh i i'm i use both made of like a career out of it in a lot of ways yeah, right yeah like- <laughs> right right so um so the one thing is you know something that we mentioned before which is that y- those tests are only going to help you in places where you thought to write the test. So you kind of have to, in a sense, anticipate the problem's existence. Sure. Whereas whereas a type system can catch things you never anticipated. And and in practice, let me tell you, it frequently will. Like every single every single hour, maybe every every few minutes, it's going to do that. Uh, and the second thing is, unlike those tests, I don't have to write any extra code to get the type system guiding me, you know? I mean, that's not strictly true. We have to write a little code. But when we ported the front end from JavaScript to TypeScript, it grew by maybe 10% in length. Yeah. Um, so there's there's actually quite a small overhead. Whereas if I wanted to do two-to-one test coverage, we're talking about 200% extra code instead of 10%. You know, it's, it's, it is, it's very difficult to overstate <laughs> the, the difference un- until you've actually done both in a similar system. Yeah. Um, do you find yourself like doing less TDD now, like with TypeScript? Like, cause I'm thinking with the example that you just gave, right. Where we're talking about like changing like a column type on a database table. Like I would imagine that there's like some underlying, um, change in functionality that's like driving the need to do that. Right. And normally like I would write a test for this new change in functionality that I wanted to implement. And I would expect that hopefully that would lead me to make any of the same sort of actual like behavioral changes that were necessary. But since there's no actual type checking, then it doesn't really matter if like 
from module B to module Z, I never explicitly say, oh, this string became a number or vice versa, because all that matters, like from the perspective of like all those modules is that the thing getting passed through is like a database savable. You know what I mean? At the end of the day. Um, I mean, well, so a few ways to tackle that. I mean, one thing about that scenario is that if you're in pure JavaScript, probably your database layer, if you pass it a string, for a number, uh, an integer column, it's probably just going to like stick it in there, and it's, it'll probably actually work at runtime. But what that means is that you, in your mind, you're imagining this number propagating through, but in reality, there's a string there, and your tests just don't tell you because it still it still works at runtime. And and then there's like a risk that somewhere else in a different API handler, one day where this data gets read, you are expecting that you only and you're doing something that only works on a number for a change now now like you're thinking well yeah it is always a number like i never proved that it was always a number but like again because we're not writing those stupid tests of like test that when a string enters the function like we throw an exception or whatever right right um yeah yeah um I was a second part to what you just, uh, or I had a second response and I've totally forgotten. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> no, no, it's my fault. I just, I have terrible memory. Uh, that's why, maybe that's why I need a type system. Maybe you have perfect memory. <laughs> um, yeah, I lost it. Okay, all good. Um, I do have other stuff kind of related to this that I think would be interesting to get into because um, I, could, I sort of expected that this would just be like a TypeScript conversation, which is cool because I'm, I'm into that. Because uh, it has been intriguing me and I, I feel like I have been like notoriously um protest anti type system for a long time like my and, and part of that is colored by the fact that like most of my like professional programming experiences in like php now not like the php everyone thinks of but you know modern php which is better right. in a lot of ways but in my opinion probably has the worst like quote unquote type system of any programming language of all time which is like it's it's you can add type hints to things but they're only evaluated at runtime as the code passes through them there's no oh. compile step to verify that like things are set, sending the right things to each other so in php specifically i think it is a complete waste of time to be uh, <laughs> doing any type checking because so you yeah more like contracts than than a they're more like contracts than a type system then like runtime contracts yeah is that yeah. is that accurate okay yeah. i'm not so familiar like, with this if, at all yeah if you make a mistake in your code and you ship it to production and you've added a type hint like the only difference is that the bug snag error is going to be a different bug snag error it's going (laughs) to be that like you didn't pass in the right type not that like you didn't that the code is just broken um you know what i mean so maybe there's like some small benefit to that but like you're not getting that like feedback as you develop that like you're making mistakes there's certain ides that i think try to like give you that in like your editor but that's never but, really going to work well. I mean, if the no. if if the language wasn't designed for static verification, then every boundary where there's not a static type is just going to be like a black hole for the yeah. type system. It can't see past it. Anyway, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Yeah, yeah, no. So, but I have been interested in TypeScript a lot because of the stuff that you've been saying about it. But also, like, you share a lot of interesting TypeScript examples sometimes that make me see, like, wow, like that is like an interesting thing for a type system to. Um, be able to do so i think like what i'd like to kind of get into a little bit here is just generally like why you think typescript is so well designed and like what you see as some of like the really interesting design decisions about it and how that sort of compares to other type systems uh, especially like notoriously 
ones that I've notoriously had a bad impression of, like Java or C sharp type systems, um, or God forbid, like C plus plus, like quote unquote type system. You know, um, <laughs> your generics are just runtime string concatenation. What could go wrong? <laughs> Um, yeah, um, so I would love to learn. I would love to learn more about that because I think like one of the places that I see TypeScript as being really interesting compared to other places is like you have no like concrete concept of like an, an interface the same way that you would in like PHP, for example. Where like one of the arguments I've always had against like the PHP type system is that um, if someone has, has declared like a proper interface, like a JavaScript style interface, right, mm-hmm. and they have an implementation you, of that, a, and you, you want to like pass in something else interface? to override it, but the interface is private, and you can't actually like implement the interface directly. Well, now it's going to fail, even though you're doing everything you can to pass in something that's the exact same shape. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. My understanding of TypeScript is that it doesn't have that sort of concept, and that types really are just like shape definitions a lot of time, not so much like class definitions. Mm-hmm. That's yeah, that's exactly right. So um, probably the best comparison point to start with because they they are both um, more common a and simpler. Maybe not in Java's case, but uh, so if you think about Java versus Go, Java is a nominal type system, which means if you have a user class, it's named user, and if you want to pass something to a function that takes a user, it has to be an instance of that user class. Yeah. That doesn't mean if you define a second class named user in a different package, like they're not interchangeable. It's so it's not so nominal is kind of a misnomer. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, <laughs> Lots of nomen going on today. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was not intentional, but after the fact, I feel clever. Um, so if something takes a user, it's got to be an instance of this user class. Go, one of the sort of fundamental design decisions in Go is we're going to do basically the opposite of that. So Go is a structural type system, which means if if you have something that takes an interface named user and the, the user interface says a user has these various methods on it, anything that has those methods with those type signatures will be passable to that, which can end up in weird, you can end up with weird situations like um, if you have two interfaces that happen to ta- have the same methods on them, they're just like interchangeable, even if they shouldn't be. Even like if they have like no get sense. and set and reset or something, you know what I mean? Like yeah, just like right. some like, generic sort of data structure sort of fields. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so that is a theoretical downside, although I can say in practice, having used a structural type system for whatever, a year and a half, two years, that it doesn't seem to be a problem in practice. Uh, so TypeScript is like Go, not like Java. So... Uh, in fact, there's really no good way to even emulate nominal types in TypeScript, which is sometimes a problem because you might want things like this number is degrees Fahrenheit and this number is degrees Celsius, but you have no way to distinguish those at the type level. So you crash your orbiter into Mars or whatever, like, mm. you know, um, so, uh, the TypeScript type system is all about structure, uh, and that is one of the fundamental design decisions that makes it an extremely flexible, like weirdly flexible static language. One of the reasons at at the top of this podcast that I said that I never would have imagined it was possible, uh, it's not that I didn't know about any of the individual pieces that they could have used. It's more that I had not thought through what would happen if you basically made every type system decision to allow maximum typing of weird existing dynamic language code which is basically what they did <laughs> yeah because you know the javascript code in the out in the wild it does all kinds of weird stuff like 
you see a lot of really weird like function overloading where the second argument can be one of like six different things depending on what the first one was and all yeah. that. And TypeScript doesn't even bat an eye that kind of stuff. Like yeah. it, it, it can type all of that stuff. So, and that's because of like all the sort of fancy like union types and stuff that you can create generally, yeah, you, right? So union types are a big part of that. Um, as are uh, as is the structural typing. So if you imagine. If TypeScript had nominal typing, it would just it would be dead in the water because it would be incapable of typing most JavaScript code. Well, maybe not literally most, but it would be incapable of typing so much of it that it just wouldn't be useful for its yeah. stated purpose, which is interop. Uh, so, and you know, I'm sure we could go through other languages. Actually, unions is a pretty good one. So, uh, in let me think of what would be a good way to frame this. In most static languages if you want to say that i have a type that can that can be either of these two other types uh one way to kind of work to make that happen is to use if you have classes at least is to use subclassing so you have to introduce a base class and you have to make your thing take the base class and you can pass any of the subclasses as the base class but the problem with that is that you had to go and manipulate the type of the thing being passed just to serve the function that wanted to take the thing as an argument, right? You had to go insert a base class. Uh, in TypeScript, I mean, TypeScript has subclassing and, you know, TypeScript has a lot of things. It's very <laughs> kind of complex, but um, it has this feature called type unions. So if you have an existing type, let's say user, and you want to make a function that can take either a user or a, I don't know, group, you know, it's some kind of like ownership related function, you don't have to introduce some kind of weird, unnatural base class that's, what would you even call it? You know, uh, uh, can own things. Yeah, and yeah. And yeah, like, yeah. you know, it just gets super and weird. then like user implements that explicitly and group implements yeah. that explicitly. Right. Yeah. So now you have introduced a new class and you had to modify two existing ones. And what if you don't own those? What if those are part of a third? One of those is from one third yeah. party module and the other is from this another. This is literally like the argument that I always make against like what, the PHP like interface based type system, mm -hmm. right? So that's why it's interesting to talk about how like TypeScript gives you <laughs> every benefit that no one gets in PHP and removes every downside that I was arguing. <laughs> so, um, oh, it sounds great when you yeah, say it that way. Yeah. Um, so, all right. So, how would you do that in TypeScript? Do you want to make this function that can take a user or a group? One way would be if you're lucky or if you control both of those, you could say that the portions of the interface that my function cares about have to be the same. So like maybe you introduce a method on both user and group that is take ownership of or something, but that's kind of just a different version of the first thing, which is you go in and you change the existing code, which yep. you may or may not even control. So you could do that in TypeScript, but the, the more flexible solution is to use a union type, which is you say, all right, I'm making a new type called, let's say can own things again. And it literally is just, it's either going to be a user or a group. Like that's all a type union is. It's going to be this type or that type. Yep. And then when you write your function, you know that that thing coming in is a can own things. So all you have to do is figure out which of those two things it is. And then you call the appropriate functions, which may not even have the same name or take the same arguments or whatever. And so from the, from an, so from an outside perspective, from someone calling your new function, they don't have to worry about any of that weird stuff. All they know is they can pass a user or a group. And it's like the, the, comp 
the structural complexity that is necessitated for your new function is contained within the function. It doesn't leak and out or become the responsibility of someone else. Yeah, exactly. No introducing no base classes, no munging around the existing methods to match each other. Yeah. None of that weird stuff, you know. And uh, some people hearing that will think, well, but maybe the methods should match each other. And what this is really doing is allowing you to perpetuate inconsistent design decisions across the system, which is absolutely true. And so it's the same thing like, you know, that we kept talking about with types and tests. Like it doesn't, it's not gonna magically make you design the system properly. And in fact, I would say that uh, compared to other static languages, TypeScript gives you way, TypeScript is probably the the static language that will give you the, the most flexibility to make bad design decisions. Sure. Because it is designed to accommodate all existing JavaScript yeah. code, which is just, you know, for good and ill, like good and bad code, it's going to just type it all. You can so, write types that are essentially are equivalent to not having types. Like like you're, yeah, you're losing sure, yeah. all the benefit of. And it has that type. Its name is any. You know, yeah. any just means like don't don't worry about it. It's fine. Yeah. Like just trust yeah. me. I'm I'm a smart programmer. And what, what, what does it look uh, like in practice to actually like in that case do that sort of check in that function in TypeScript? Does TypeScript provide like operators for checking like if instance of or if instance of because like it's it's it not really an instance of right right it wouldn't be instance of um because that's for classes yeah but uh so or is it just to up of, to you to just to, to figure out how you want to determine which of the two well, it, it no, TypeScript has to know, be, and the reason is that it has to maintain the integrity of the static types. So if a user has a method the group doesn't have, and your function wants to call that method, then you need to somehow tell TypeScript in a way that it can actually verify that uh, that this thing is a user. So let's You can't just say, like, if, like, I don't know the exact pseudocode, you know, if if key exists name then i'm going to assume it's a user and now i'm going to pass it to some other function whose type definition says it must take a user like typescript's going to fall right. over or it's going to no kind no of yell actually at you that, that is so that is one of the ways okay. so that will actually work um you could literally say you could use javascript's in operator for example and say if the string name in my object my can own things object and then inside of that if the ver the type of that variable only for that block of code will be user. It will not. It will no longer be the union. It's called and, narrowing. You're and, narrowing. And TypeScript the user is doing that automatically. Like you're never mm -hmm. like explicitly saying. So it it's no. kind of like it's kind of inferring like what the check was that you tried to do. Yeah, it's like I mean, what it's so it doesn't know what you. It's not like it can read your mind and know what you're trying to do, right? But what it's doing is well, this is all assuming that there is not a name property on the group class. On both. So that yeah, would be yeah, a different yeah. case that we would that we can talk about. But so assuming that only one of them has a name property, when you say if name in this object, it knows that if that if that if is true, it knows that only one of the two sides of that union, only one of the things that you combine to get this new type has a name. So it just has to be that one. Now suppose that you had unioned three things together and two of them had a name property. Yeah, sure. When you said if name in, what you would be doing is actually narrowing it to a union of two things instead of three. So it's like that's a sort completely of like created in line, like sort of right. Like it's a, a type. Like an, it's not like an explicitly defined named union that exists anywhere. It's just like right. how it's thinking of it at the time. 
it's sort of like conjuring that type out of thin air because that is the static type of that thing. And if it if it produces an error message that contains that type, the it won't have a name, but it'll say the syntax is type one pipe like vertical bar. Yeah, yeah. Type two. So it'll say, you know, like type one pipe type two does not have whatever property you tried to access or whatever the error is. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's also the syntax in the language too. It's just a pipe between yeah. the two things. So what are the other ways that you would make that sort of check? And because that way sounds unpleasant to me but maybe yeah um, that is not the the recommended path even though that's where we started um but but it does it is so before we get to the right way that that way is a very nice demonstration of something i said before about typescript being like every design choice is how do we allow it to to type the maximum amount of weird stuff that's in the wild because sometimes you're going to have a library that has a user type and a group type and it has a function that takes either but it's just javascript so there are no type definitions and so you need to be able to express this and it just totally allows you to do that the better way to do it is uh so the traditional um the traditional property that's used to distinguish between different sides of a union is kind we don't want to use type because it's not actually a type so we just say you know the kind of this is user and the kind of that is uh is a group and uh, you would say, so users always have a kind that is the string user, like U-S-E-R. Gotcha. Yeah. And the type of that string user is not string. The type of the, the string user is the string user. <laughs> it's called a literal type. So it's a type that is only a single actual string value. Yeah. And then the, t- the, the, group, t- uh, uh, yeah, the group type would have a, a kind property that is the string group. And so then when you union them together, you can, and you want to write your conditional to, to take them back apart, you just say, if can own things dot, or whatever, whatever your variable is, yeah. if can own things dot kind equals user, inside of that conditional, it's the same thing, it's narrowed to a user. And then in the else branch, it will be automatically narrowed to um, to a group. Is this like a convention that's like documented in like the TypeScript documentation, like this is like a recommended thing or is this just like a community has sort of agreed on this? Um, it is definitely not part of the language itself. It is a convention, but it yeah. is uh, in like a recommended, what I've seen, like officially recommended convention. I've never seen them explicitly recommend it, but I can guarantee that it shows up in the docs a lot. So gotcha. it's, um, yeah, it's definitely, it's basically universal uh, and kind is, is, seems to be the property name that basically everyone uses. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so for people who have used, um, other static languages, especially the functional ones, this is basically how you do the equivalent of a type constructor. It's a discriminated union. You're discriminating based on the, uh, a, uh, an actual data property as opposed to a sort of weird type thing that's not visible at runtime. Yeah. But that ultimately comes back to the JavaScript thing because ultimately at runtime, when you switch between those two, the user and the group, it, the switch has to work in a way that doesn't require the types because the types get stripped away at runtime. Mm, yep. So that's why you use a property. And uh, when you first hear this, it kind of sounds like I just described two like weird hacks that could be used in weird situations, but like, does it generalize? And the answer is it generalizes basically to everything. Like it never falls down, which is super surprising to me. Um, but uh yeah it's it's pretty i mean it makes a lot of sense to me i think like what you hinted at where with like the something having like a literal type of a specific value is like a really um 
I think that's a powerful concept that like could easily like go past people if they didn't like really think about like what that lets you do, I think. Yeah. Um, it's and it's useful for a lot more than this because you can say things like um so for example, uh in execute program, there are a number of kind of states that a user can be in that we often care about. So they could be anonymous, they could be uh, a registered user who is who does not have a paid subscription. They could have a paid subscription. They could be subscribed to destroy all software, which gives them access to execute program. Uh, or they could have a, have had a paid subscription, but they canceled it. But they're still in the window they paid for, so they still you know we call that unsubscribing. So that's five states that they can be in. At the type level, the way that that is expressed is a union between five literal types, like the literal strings, subscribed, unsubscribing, subscribed to DAS, etc. And so that allows us, whenever we're, we need to create one of those values, it ensures that we don't, you know, put in the wrong value or a value that doesn't exist. If we ever change the set of possible subscription or possible user types, the type system will immediately put a type error at every single place in the entire system that references the one that's no longer uh, exists. And the the part of this that's the most amazing is whenever we need to write conditional code based on those, which is not that often, but we probably do it at five or ten different places, you yeah. know. Um, when we do a switch statement on that user type, the TypeScript compiler will ensure that we handle all five of those cases. And if we ever add a sixth case, every single switch statement that goes over that will be a type uh, compile error. So the compiler will tell us, kind of like that example I gave going from the database to the front end props, it will tell us what needs to be changed in order for the thing that you're trying to do to actually make sense. <laughs> yeah, like what's and, that corner of the system that was checking this that you forgot about and didn't think right. to write a test for that is now gonna fucking break because <laughs> you forgot to update and it, yeah. The, a really critical part of that is, suppose we had used a dynamic language with tests your tests are not going to tell you that the six different places in your system that did a switch statement on the type of user need to have another branch. They're not, they don't know. They don't know that that, yeah. that thing exists. And so, uh, and that might turn into a runtime failure. It probably will. Probably what it'll turn into is a function that should have returned something but returned undefined because the switch fell through. None of the cases matched. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so, uh, you know, actually, this is probably a really good answer to one or more questions that you asked sure. early on about, because <laughs> you know, there's just you're never going to get that out of a test. It's it's impossible. Yeah. yeah, and it's because it's it's an example of the thing that I described where it's it's because the types are saying well, the types are saying what is possible. Not they're not a list of examples of things that happen. They're saying what is possible. And so if the if the possibility claims of module A no longer line up with B type error you know that's would you the really say though that way. like again i don't think this is probably true every single time but a lot of the time like that that's really just a signal to you that you have to decide like what should happen now in that area of the app that i had forgotten about when this user is in this new state maybe totally. i should write a test for that um Maybe test, maybe not, but I mean, I can give you a really good example. So I just, the other day I made a nicer page for our, uh, did sort of the standard like software as a service thing and made a plans page where it's like, there's the sure. free plan and then there's the paid plan. And as part of that, I wanted the buttons at the bottom of each of those plans to change depending on your subscription state. So like if you're a paying customer, the free plan will have a downgrade button under it. But if you're not a paying customer, then the paid plan will have an upgrade button, you know? So it's like just kind of matching them. 
and I had forgotten one of the states. I forgot the subscribed to DAS state, uh, which is like the weirdest one that doesn't come up that often. And uh, if the type system hadn't told me about that, probably what would have happened is that anyone who has uh, subscribed to, to destroy all software would get no buttons or something, or maybe it was the anonymous state. I don't remember one of them or the other. And so because I had the type system ensuring that I handled all those cases, I didn't even need, I didn't need tests to tell me that, you know, like I just, yeah. it just makes me handle all the things. Yeah. So that's interesting. That's like a, I think like if I was to distill that down to like what I think is the interesting point is that like the straw man argument is like, well, what if you, what if someone passes in dumb bullshit type you weren't ever planning to handle? Like in this case, it's like, what if someone passes in type you're totally expecting to handle, but forgot to think about, mm. you know what I mean? Yeah. It's, um, it does both sides and that's, you know, that's a yeah. very important thing to recognize. And, um, so, you know, I mentioned that you have to learn how to think with your type system helping you. And one of those, one of the things you have to learn is like, this is one of the things you can trust it to do. If you write a function that switches on a union and all the branches of the switch return something, it's going to type error. If, mm-hmm. uh, well, I think you have to turn on some, you have to turn on strict mode or something, which you should do anyway. I mean, there's all kinds of, you know, configuration things involved, but yeah. if it's configured conservatively which it should be because it's a static type checker then uh yeah it's going to find that stuff for free pretty cool there's one other example i kind of want to talk about quickly before we uh before we wrap up if you have time which was there's a tweet you put out i don't know how long ago it was but um where you're you're giving an example of like a cool thing that you can do in typescript that you almost like forget to do once in a while which is like uh, say you have like two properties on uh, an object and like they can both be undefined but like if one of them is not undefined like the other one has to be undefined or has mm-hmm. to not be undefined too like it, it was something sort of like this where yeah, like an XOR kind of sorry like an XOR like an exclusive or like one or the other must no, be populated I think it was the, oh, no. well that I think would be a fine example too I think in this specific example it was like you were talking about there was like like a some data coming in and it could be in one state or another and in one state it maybe has three fields filled out but in like another Mm. state it has like five but like those extra two both have to be there Um, right and if like you were just writing this code normally like you'd often be writing checks like if this one is not undefined but the other one is undefined then oh that's a problem but like Mm -hmm. typescript gives you a way to sort of like make sure that that doesn't happen so could you describe um, how that kind of works and what sort of the advantages of that are. Yeah. So and I remember this tweet now. Um, so the problem was, uh, so execute program, um, we have a whole bunch of different courses, like there's a TypeScript course and regexes course and a SQL course and so on. And any given user may or may not have started any given course, meaning they've done at least one lesson. And if they've started the course, then there's going to be a, a timestamp for when they started it, which we use for various purposes. Uh, as well as, I can't even think of what other properties would be there. I don't want to pull up the source code, but um, let's say it has, oh yeah, it has a, a time they started it, and it has the name of the last lesson that they did, which we show in the UI in the course list to just give them a reminder. But those should only be there for a started course. Now, in JavaScript, the way that's going to look is if the course is not started, those properties are both just going to be undefined probably, right? Or maybe mm-hmm. null, but probably undefined. Uh, and 
as that builds up over time and you gain more and more of those properties and you have them on both sides, meaning started courses have some properties that are undefined, unstarted courses have other properties that are undefined, some can be undefined for either of them, some can, you know, but some are exclusive to one or the other, it starts to get really confusing because in reality you have two two states, right? It's either started or not, but the all of the relationships between those properties and the states is not reflected in the JavaScript code. It's never going to be, you know, I mean, you could do backflips to make it, ref to try to reflect it, but it's, it's a lot of work. In TypeScript, this is just another instance of unions, you know, like unions just solve so many problems. In TypeScript, we just say, okay, we have a type that is a started course. It has a kind that is the literal string started. It has uh, a timestamp. It has a last finished lesson name that's a string. And that's just, it's a normal object type. And then we say, uh, we have another type that is an unstarted course. It has a kind that is unstarted and it has no other properties, although there could be other properties. I think actually in reality there are, but I just can't remember what they are. Uh, so we have these two types and we just union them together to get a new type that is overall an overall course type that can be either started or unstarted. And the wonderful thing here is in order to access any of those properties that are specific to one or the other, we're going to have to do that conditional thing we talked about. We're going to have to say, like, if, you know, course.kind equals started. Suddenly inside of that, if we can access those properties, but they're inaccessible outside. And if there are any, any properties that are shared between those two types, then we don't have to do the if because they're on both types, so they're on, they're on union. And, like, it's sort of, it's giving you, it's not access control in the sense of, like, security or something, but it's giving you this kind of, like, access control in that it's it's allowing you to say what your expectations for access to the properties are and then it just enforces them for you uh and you can do this to an arbitrary level of complexity you know some of those other properties on those different sides of the unions could themselves be unions which happens mm -hmm. in practice you know uh if if we theoretically looked at a full type definition for you know the api endpoint that represents a lesson for example you would see unions inside unions and and that's making sure that we that all of the constraints of the system's data are actually enforced on both sides. Yeah, it's super interesting. I pulled up like the actual tweet, and like the example is like a course with like a name that's a string, a started which is true or false, and then a last interaction which is like a date or undefined. And I think most people would probably write it that way. Like they're thinking yeah. like, okay, well, started can be true or false. Like if started is true, then there will be a last interaction. But if started is false, then it's undefined. So yeah, it needs to be like date or undefined. But the reality is like that's not actually capturing like the real structure of the data that you want to guarantee or enforce the real thing you want to guarantee is like if started is explicitly true then last interaction must be a date it cannot mm. be undefined and like the sort of lazy version of that like is allowing that and it's easy to kind of miss that you're sort of allowing that or you're going to just find yourself right. doing that undefined checking code and that should sort of like be sounding the alarms that probably you're um <laughs> made a yeah, mistake yeah. in like your type definition uh, and it, it also, if you do that, if you say like, if started at equals undefined, the more you do that, especially if you're doing multiple checks on multiple properties like that, you're, you're not seeing the truth about the data. You're seeing, you're seeing one little piece at a time, but as when you go back and read that code, you don't get this sort of higher level picture of like, oh, there's just exactly two states the thing can be in. Yeah. Um, and just to clarify something. I forgot that it was the, the the discriminator in that case is true versus false. Yeah, yeah. TypeScript, of course, has a Boolean type, 
but true can be used as a literal type. Yeah. So one of those object types has like the like started is the literal value true. You cannot put a false there. That would be a type error. And then the other one has a false and you cannot put a true there. And then together, of course, by their powers combined. It can't be true or false. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, it's (laughs) super interesting. That was like one of the examples that I saw that was like, ah, man, like I, I want to learn this because it's, uh, it's like, it's just like totally new concepts to my brain in terms of like what a type system can do, you know? And I want to just like flex it and see what it's like. So, I mean, on that note, I think like we've been going like, like twice as long (laughs) as I originally planned, which I Uh I expected in some ways, but, um, you know, sure. Um, so I think it's probably a good time to wrap up, but I think like based on how this conversation went, probably a, a thing that I would like to point people to on your behalf even is that execute program actually has a TypeScript course, which yeah. I expect is probably really good given <laughs> your <laughs> understanding <laughs> of TypeScript and the way that you use it. And I'm actually really looking forward to running through that myself because we're planning to start uh, some new projects in TypeScript because the people who work with me really like TypeScript and I haven't used it yet. So I'm looking mm. forward to like diving into that and sort of ramping up myself. Um, where can people sort of find that? And is there anything else you want people to sort of like uh, check out if they're interested in kind of the stuff we've talked about today and some of the work that you're doing? Uh, well, I think, I mean, ex- I'm obviously biased, but execute program I think is a very good way to get uh, to get into TypeScript. Um, our course assumes that you know, it doesn't assume any static language knowledge. It assumes that you know at least a programming language. Um, the more JavaScript knowledge you have, the faster it'll go, of course. Mm-hmm. It does have lessons on all the stuff we've talked about. So union types, type literals, using the two together to create discriminated unions, uh, all that stuff is in there. And um, yeah, it's executeprogram.com or unsurprisingly, we're the first Google result if you search for it. So easy to find. Awesome. What What is like the time investment like do you expect for someone who wanted to like do that TypeScript course? Huh. Um, I'm actually doing the numbers in my head. So I believe currently on average, a lesson takes across our entire user base, a lesson takes about seven minutes. And I mm-hmm. think that there are about 35 lessons in the course. So that's 245 minutes, which is four hours. And then probably it's going to be more like six because you'll get automated reviews of past things that you've learned occasionally. But those six hours, you know, one thing to mention is that that does not mean you can sit down at noon and do the course and be done at 6 p.m. because Execute Program will periodically stop you and make you wait for a day. And then it's going to review the thing you just learned and make sure you actually remember it. And then assuming you do, then you continue on. So there's a bunch of those sort of stop points. So it'll pro- it'll take you anywhere, it'll take you about six hours probably, and that will be spread across anywhere from 12 to 20 days, let's say. Um, so, you know, I'm trying to think of, I don't want to make a giant sales pitch, but our goal is to use your time effectively. And that does mean you have to wait sometimes, but I want the, you know, I designed this system to, take the minimum number of hours of your life that it can at the expense of spreading those hours out. And that's what the review system does. With like sort of the very deliberate goal of also making sure you actually know the thing at the end, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, by the time you finish that course, you will have answered in the neighborhood of four to 500 interactive code examples. And every single one of them, you will have found the right answer because if you didn't, you won't get to the end. And people mm-hmm. get to the end just fine, so it works. <laughs> yeah, but you know that's it's 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 very it feels very good to have that kind of concrete feedback. Like, okay, yes, I actually understood that. At, you know, on a yeah. second by second basis, or at least minute by minute. Yeah, um, 
so yeah anyway what other what other topics do you cover on execute program if anyone is interested in any of the other stuff uh we have a course on regular expressions which was actually the very first one um we have one on sql where we actually run a live sql database in your browser so the code examples are running against a real it's sql light it's not like postgres or something mm-hmm. but it is a real sql engine um did you build that yeah. yourself no, that's actually wow. just on NPM. There's a package called <laughs> wow. SQL.js that's just like straight up SQLite compiled into Wasm. I mean, we had to, you know, we had to wrap it and do a bunch of sort of secondary work, but the bulk of the work was done by very nice people maintaining that project. Yeah, yeah, I was like, especially it, it just kind of worked out of the box. And I was like, really? This is like <laughs> the future is actually here. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, and we also have courses on modern JavaScript, so everything ES pretty much ES6 and later. Like, it's kind of like, if you know basic JavaScript, it's like a delta on top of that, like sets and maps and classes and all the new stuff. And we have one on JavaScript arrays. I'm pretty sure I'm forgetting one. I'm going to feel bad, but yeah. Uh, I'm looking now. It looks like JavaScript concurrency. Oh, yeah, the newest one, concurrency, yeah. yeah. So concurrency is like callback-based concurrency promises um, async is going to be added to it. Async await is going to be added to it soon. Uh, and yeah, I'm actually really proud of that one because it has lots of interactive examples where you like see concurrent code running in real time and like logging stuff and it like comes out right in our UI as it logs. It's, it's very concrete and nice, but very cool. Awesome, man. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show and taking your time to chat with me about this stuff. It was uh, super interesting and I'm more excited than ever to learn TypeScript and use the execute program to learn it. Awesome. Well, I look forward to hearing how that goes. There you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Gary about TypeScript and testing. If you're interested in the show notes for this episode, you can find them at fullstackradio.com slash episodes slash 144. Thanks for listening to the podcast as always, and we'll see you next time.